Uh, I was so encouraged. I was really delighted to be able to hear Pastor Nate's sermon this past week because of our podcast and really, really grateful for those who are working hard to make that available to us. Uh, But the one thing that Nate mentioned last week that really stuck out to me, uh, he said, we think we need all kinds of things in our lives, but the one thing you need is Jesus. Like that's simple, And you guys have heard that over and over and over again, and I have heard that over and over and over again. And yet, if we would really grasp that truth, if we would really grasp that reality, that the one thing that you and I need more than anything else, and if we had nothing else, it is to simply have Jesus. Looked at Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 talked about how God would give us eyes that could see the hope to which he has called us. That God would remind us and show us and give us eyes to see the love with which he loves us and to know that he treasures us as his people and he values us. That God would give us eyes to see the greatness of his power. Well, tonight we're going to continue with our series, but before we jump into our text in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take just a few moments to look at some of the background information for the book of Ephesians. Uh, It's really, really important sometimes. It's like you can read through the book of Ephesians without knowing anything about the historical context, and you can understand the essential truths in Ephesians. Even the passage that we read tonight If you didn't know anything about what we're about to talk about here for the next couple moments, you would still be able to grasp some of these realities, though you wouldn't see them as clearly as you'll be able to see them having understood the background. So, uh, remember, the book of Ephesians was originally a letter that Paul wrote to a church or to a collection of churches in an area that was around Ephesus. Uh, So that means that God's word to us was first God's word to them back in the first century. That God's word to us was originally God's word to the people in Ephesus and the churches in that area. Having an understanding of what was going on when Paul wrote this letter helps us understand with greater clarity and possibly even with greater weight and significance what he's saying in some of these verses. So please open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. That's back to the left in your Bibles. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. If you need to use your table of contents, that's quite all right. Acts chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 24. And we're going to read through chapter 19, verse 10. It's not a lot, but it is the beginnings of the church in Ephesus. Isn't this cool? Like we read a letter to the Ephesians and we can come into another part of God's word and understand how this whole thing got started and what might be going on here in Ephesus. I think it's super cool how the Lord set that up. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, 
He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. These were two other disciples that had already begun to follow Jesus. They took him aside and they began to explain to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's what happens. Uh, this guy named Apollos, who was a great preacher, shows up in Ephesus and he begins to tell them about these things concerning the gospel. And yet he didn't quite have a full understanding of the gospel. So Paul shows up in Ephesus and he begins to help bring some more clarity and some more depth and some more understanding to what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, really is. As Paul shows up, the first thing that he does is he goes into the synagogues. This is where all the Jews would gather to worship. It says that he was there for three weeks or three months. And as he was there, they were stubborn and they continued in their unbelief. And so Paul moves from the Jewish place of worship into the Gentile social sector. He goes to the hall of Tyrannus and he begins to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so what happens is in Ephesus, as the church is beginning... It is a church that is comprised of Jewish individuals and a church that is comprised of Gentile individuals. And they are coming together. And this is absolutely insane, by the way. Like, we don't have a whole lot of things that we can compare it to today. Uh, it would be like uh, an Arab and a Christian getting together and being really, really excited about the same things, right? Uh, it would be like uh, during the time of slavery, like a white person and a black person getting together and being on the same page and being excited about the same things. It just didn't happen at that point in history. And this is the same reality with the Jews and the Gentiles here in Ephesus. This background becomes really, really important because the next two chapters that we're going to be looking at for the rest of this semester have a lot to do with unity between Jews and Gentiles. And you say, oh, great. So how in the world does that apply to my life? Because like most of you in here are Gentiles. I'm a Jew, so I'm better. Some of you might be Jewish, uh, but uh, what do we, you know, we don't have that distinction right now. Uh, the reality is 
We can take God's word. We can understand that God is calling his people to unity that Christ created. And then we can look around and we can see that there are people that are way different than we are in this room. There are people way different than we are in our church family. There are people way different from us in our schools and in our communities and in our neighborhoods that we want to see brought in to know the good news of Jesus Christ and to begin to walk with and follow Jesus and fear God. And in that, God creates this beautiful unity. I've heard the book of Ephesians summarized as saying that, Christ, that Christians should strive for the unity which Christ so powerfully created. Christians should strive for the unity which Christ so powerfully created. So now with that history lesson behind us, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Tonight our passage is verses 1 through 10. <coughs> Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. We've already seen this glorious reality that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we've been blessed by the Father, we've been blessed by the Son, we've been blessed by the Spirit, and it's all been to the praise of His glory. We saw Paul praying for this church that God would open the eyes of their hearts that they might behold His power and glory and love. And now, he goes into Ephesians chapter 2 and begins in verse 1 by saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 2 very differently than he began Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, it began by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 begins by saying, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Truth number one, I was dead. Uh, it's an odd truth to consider because looking around, in fact, you are alive. You are breathing, you have a pulse, your heart is beating, and presumably that is the same for the person sitting on your right and left. And if it is not, please raise your hand. We need to deal with that now, okay? Uh, we are all alive physically, and yet Paul declares that we are dead. He must be talking about spiritually. Spiritually, we are completely dead to God. In our sins and in our trespasses, we are completely dead to God. Paul tells us that uh, 
we're dead to God because of our trespasses. Think about the term trespass, right? Uh, you've seen it before, a sign that says no trespassing. And exactly what you want to do with every fiber of your being is to like just step over the line a little bit, right? It's like, gotcha. Uh, that's what it means to trespass. That God has laid out very, very clear boundaries in his word and his law according to his ways and character. And what we have done, all of us, you and me, as we sit in this room, have all transgressed. We have all stepped over the boundaries which God has created. This is what it means to be in our trespasses and then also in our sin. This is referring to who we are by our very nature. So trespasses is talking about like our sins, the actual crossing of the line. In our sin is talking about who we are in our core, in our nature, that we are actually anti-God and pro-self. That any thought, feeling, or speech, or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all else is what makes us sinful. And so because of my trespasses, because of my sin in my very nature, God's word declares to me that I was dead. Now look at the picture that Paul gives us, continuing in verse 2 there. It says, The sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. That we are not just dead, we are the walking dead, right? We play follow the leader with this world and with the devil, the spirit that is now at work, the prince of the power of the air. We were following the course of this world, following after the devil, the enemy of God. He who opposes God was the one whom we were following. So my sin then is just not a passive part of my nature where it's like, oh, I was born this way. It's like, no, no, no. You're actually actively walking in the way of sin, actively walking according to trespasses. Because you are sinful in your core and because you are dead to God, you actively walk in the ways of the world and in the ways of God's enemy. And yet this is so opposite of what our world tells us to believe, right? Uh, the world says, hey, you're a good person. I mean, really, compare yourself to those creeps that are out there. You've got to be better than at least 50%. And so if you're on the right side of 50%, that means that you're basically good and the other half is basically bad, right? And you guys know a lot of creeps in your life. Don't elbow the person next to you. But you're like, hey, uh, I must be a pretty good person. The world says, hey, don't be so hard on yourself. You're not really that bad. Instead, what you need to do is you just need to believe in yourself. You just need to listen to your heart. You just need to dig down deep and dream big and work hard. And you can be whoever you want to be. And God's word's like, no, you're dead. <laughs> right? Like you are dead in your sins and your trespasses, that there is nothing in us that is good and right and glorious. There is nothing in us. Nothing at all, completely dead to God and our sins and our trespasses. Yes, you may be able to do all sorts of things. You may be able to do all sorts of really, really amazing things. And yet, you cannot do anything that is spiritually good, right, and pleasing on your own. There is nothing you can do that is even an ounce acceptable before your creator and the judge of all the earth in and of your own strength. 
the news gets even better, right? The end of verse 2, it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I wasn't just dead, but I was also disobedient. The text says that I was a son or a daughter of disobedience. This is the description that we've just been discussing here for a little while. What it's saying is this, like father, like son. The devil is your father. You're his son. Like father, like son. You are a son of disobedience. Just like the world is corrupt and opposed to God, so you, a child of the world, are just like it, corrupt and in opposition to God. Just as the devil rebels against God, so you, his child, a son of disobedience, also rebel against God. 1 John 2.16 up here on the screen says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These are the things that we would strive after. These are the things that we would spend our lives seeking to attain. The desires, the lusts, the wants of our eyes, the wants of our flesh, or pride in life and what you've attained or obtained in your life. Outside of Christ, you and I were controlled by what our sinful nature wants. Controlled by our flesh, controlled by our eyes, loving and valuing all the things that the world loves and values. And because of that, verse 3 tells us that we were destined for wrath. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, in this verse, Paul intentionally says, among whom we all once lived. Now, this is where the background gets really, really important. Because what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to say, it doesn't matter if you were Jewish or if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if your mommy and daddy are Christians or they're not. All of us, the great equalizer, is recognizing that we stood under judgment and condemnation and wrath from God Almighty. There is not a single acceptance at all, or exception at all. Every single one of us, sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath. Paul says, I don't care what your background is. It doesn't matter. This is true of all of us. Dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. Rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile, tall or short, smart or stupid, it doesn't matter. One thing we all have in common is that we are destined for wrath because of our deadness and because of our disobedience. Uh, we're not going to take the time to do it now, but you can write down Revelation chapter 16. Don't read it before bed tonight. Just a little disclaimer, okay? Uh, but if you want to really understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the wrath of God, uh, Revelation chapter 16 talks about the final outpouring of God's wrath on those who rebel against him. And as you read that passage, recognize that that judgment, that wrath, was to be poured out on every single one of our heads if it were not for Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 16, don't read it before bed. Uh, but thinking about wrath, uh, I remember one time my brother and I, I may have shared this story with you guys before. Uh, one time my brother and I, we were uh, messing around with each other upstairs. He's only 14 months older than I am. Maybe some of you guys met him the last time he was here just a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were hanging out. We we're having a good time. And then as things typically do, they kind of devolved into a fight, right? 
Uh, and so uh, we start fighting with one another. Uh, I'm sure I did something because my motto has always been, I'm faster than you. So I can like kick and run, right? So I think I kicked or something like that. And then I started running away, running away. And I'm screaming for my life at this point. I'm all the way upstairs. I run down to the main level. Then I run downstairs and I'm screaming. My dad has a massive mirror in his hands in the storage room that he's moving. He hears his youngest baby boy yelling in agony. And he drops the mirror to come to my rescue, to which we stopped and looked at each other, my brother and I, and said, oh, no. (laughs) And so rather than running towards my father, I began to run away from my father. And now we're both running. We're on the same team. We run upstairs. But again, I'm faster. So I get there first and I go into the bathroom and I lock the door behind me. I let my brother fend for himself. And yet I could hear my dad as he was coming up the stairs. uh, His rightful wrath was bent in my direction. And I remember how terrified I was of that moment. Uh, I did eventually come out of the bathroom. I did eventually receive my reward, (laughs) okay? but, but guys, this is, this is a reality of wrath. We all understand it. We've been in those moments before. I know that was a bit humorous in that event, but uh, you guys have been in those moments before where you've genuinely been terrified of an authority's wrath, where you have had no idea how this was going to turn out, but the one thing you did know is it wasn't going to end well, and it wasn't going to be comfortable at all. Uh, the wrath of God was bent in our direction because of our sin, because of our disobedience, and it is the rightful wrath of God that was bent in our direction. When we talk about wrath, we are talking about God's holy hatred of sin. The creator of the universe, God Almighty, looking at and seeing what he created, not operating according to the way in which he created it, and in fact, rebelling against him, And because of that, his just and infinite and almighty wrath being bent in our directions. Friends, do we even realize how bad our condition was or is if you do not know the Lord? We have a tendency to compare ourselves and say, well, I never did blank, so I can't be that bad. What the scriptures teach us What we need to recognize this evening is the reality that because of our sins, because of our disobedience, because of our active walking in ways that are contrary to God's, his full wrath was to be poured out on our heads. We were dead, we were disobedient, we were destined for wrath, and we were completely unable to do anything about it. Verse 6 begins with, but God. But God. Verse 4, I think I hope I said. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I was dead, but God made me alive. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have turned from your sins and trusted in him for your salvation, you are no longer dead. You are alive and you will live forever. 
Your dead and your stony heart has been replaced with a living and fleshy and beating heart that loves and longs for and values and treasures the things of God. That loves and values and treasures the will of God. You no longer are the walking dead. You are, in fact, alive. One author says that Christianity is not about being a nice person. Christianity is about becoming a new person. Christianity is not becoming a nice person. Christianity is about becoming a new person. When you come to Christ, you do not just agree with information. You do not just agree that you were bad and then commit to trying really, really hard to start being good, to start being nice, to start doing the right thing. When you come to Christ, you become a new person. You are given a new heart, a new life. You are reborn. And then Paul, like, interrupts himself. If you look at verse uh, five, 5 there, it says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved! Right? Sorry, I scared you. And then he raises up and then he keeps going. It's like, whoa, 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 what in the world just happened? Why all of a sudden did Paul get so excited? And he wants us to recognize, it's like, before I go any further, you have to know that it's all grace. The but God saved you, made you alive is all of grace. It is not owed to anything that you or I have done. It is not because you made the right decision. It's not because you chose to do the right thing. It is because God in his grace, in his unmerited favor, in giving to you and I what we do not deserve, chose to make us alive. By grace, you've been saved. You were dead. There was nothing you could do. God made you alive. And if God had not saved you, you would still be dead. If God had not saved you, you would still be a son or a daughter of disobedience. You would still be walking in the ways of the world. You would still be destined for wrath. But God in his grace set his eyes on your soul, and he made you alive in Christ. It's as if Paul is thinking like, hey, hey guys, listen, listen, listen. Don't get lost here, okay? We, all that stuff before, like the dead and trespasses and disobedience, that we were talking about you then, but right now we're talking about God. So this isn't about you and what you've done. This is about God and what God has done. God has made me alive in Christ. Verse 6, he continues, and he raised us up with him. God hasn't just made me alive, but he also raised me up. Uh, this is the idea that just as we have been crucified with Christ, so also we have been resurrected with Christ, that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. Sin didn't have the final word. His buried body began to breathe, right? That he conquered sin, he conquered death, and just as he conquered sin and death, so we too will conquer sin and death because we are in Christ. We were raised up with Christ in that moment. I can be confident that I will share in a resurrection like his. He made me alive, he raised me up, and he seated me with Christ. This whole idea of being seated with Christ, this is a reference to authority and to the position that Jesus now holds. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13 say this on the screen, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That Jesus, after he rose from the dead, 
He ascended into heaven and now he sits at the right hand of the Father that Jesus Christ is alive and well and he is interceding. That means he is talking to God the Father on your and my behalf and he has all authority over heaven and earth, all authority over sin and Satan and he has given us that power to resist sin and Satan. He has given us that authority to denounce sin and Satan. He has given us that authority to overcome the power of sin and Satan. Satan in our lives. No, we are not like Jesus where we're actually sitting at the right hand of the Father, but we've been given the same power, the same dominion, the same authority over the power of sin and over evil. This passage says we were dead and now we're alive. This passage says I was a sinner and now I'm a saint. This passage says I was a son of disobedience and now I'm a son of righteousness. This passage says that I was destined for wrath Now this passage says, I'm destined for eternal life. This passage says, I was a child of wrath, and now I'm a child of God. Why would God do this? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus The first reason that God would make me alive, would raise me up, would seat me with him is to magnify his grace. To magnify his grace. The simple answer is God would do this to the praise of his glory. The fact that you and I will be with the Lord and with each other for eternity declares from the rooftops that God is rich in grace. Because when we consider our status before Christ, recognizing that that was really true of us, that we weren't as great as we really thought we were, but we were evil and wicked and sinful, and yet we can spend eternity with God as his children, all that does is scream, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. All of it to the praise of his glory. His grace is immeasurable. And when we gather together as the redeemed around his throne, we will for all eternity revel and rejoice in God's grace. Verse eight, uh, Paul revisits his interruption from earlier. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Uh, I picture Paul like he's some kid in a play and like he knows his one line. He's got his one line. He's got his one line and like he misses where he's at and the whole thing and he gets so caught up in the emotions of it. He's like, oh my grace, you've been saved. And it's like, okay, now it's your turn. You can actually do your line, right? And so verse eight, he like more calmly, but clearly says, hey, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. By grace, you've been saved. It's not your own doing. You see, it's not complicated. You're saved through faith, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. It's not complicated, but it is supernatural. It's not hard, but it is impossible for someone that is dead. If you've been sitting here and thinking, I don't know that I've experienced this but God and his grace reality, it's really this simple. You turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus. You stop walking according to the ways of the world and by God's grace, as you embrace Jesus and the truth and the gospel, you turn to Jesus and you trust in him only to save you from the present condition in which you are. 
If you are sitting here tonight and God is opening your eyes to see his great love, to see the richness of his mercy and the kindness of his forgiveness, then what do you do? You place your faith in Jesus. You turn to him and you simply cry out, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. This is how you come to life. This is how you begin to have power over sin. You cast yourself at the feet of the cross and you believe in Jesus and Jesus alone to rescue you from your sin, from the wrath that you were due. And by God's grace, you turn from your sin. This is what it means to make much of God's grace. This is what brings praise to his glory. Secondly, God's done this to maintain my humility. I'll be brief here, verse nine. It says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation, your faith, none of it is because of anything that you have done. You don't have to do anything. Jesus has already done everything. You simply have to cast yourself at Jesus' feet. Trust in Jesus. All his work, none of your work. Why? So that we have nothing to boast in. None of my salvation is to the praise of my glory. I won't be up in heaven thinking about the plight of all of those who are spending eternity in hell and saying, well, I was just smarter than them, right? No, it'll all be because of God's grace. Finally, God does this to mobilize his people. You can't stop this preaching on Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 9. You have to go through verse 10 because it goes on to talk about what God has done, the reason, a reason for which he has saved us. It says, for we are his workmanship, fashioned by him, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created anew in Christ Jesus for good works. My good works do not save me, but once I am saved, my life overflows with good works. I began walking in sin, and now I walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. I do nothing to earn my salvation, but once I'm saved, I live as one who has gone from death to life. I now value the things that God values. I treasure the things that God treasures. I'm no longer controlled by the passions of my flesh and I don't carry out the desires of my body. Now in Christ, I am controlled by the Spirit and I carry out the desires of the Lord. In other words, when I've been redeemed by Christ, my life begins to be lived to the praise of His glory. So Father, we come before you tonight recognizing that apart from you, we are sunk. Father, apart from you, we have no hope in this life or for eternity. Father, apart from you, we are eternally lost. And yet, because of your great mercy, because of your great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that we have been saved. And so the redeemed in this room rejoice. And, oh, Father, I pray that those who do not know you, who have not turned from their sins and trusted in you, Holy Spirit of God, I ask that you would draw them. 
Father, that they would seek someone out here tonight and that they would have a conversation to understand what it means to place their faith and hope and confidence in you for salvation and God, that you would rescue for eternity. In Christ's name.